This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us worship the Lord our God. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Joining with those who are before the throne of God, worshiping day and night within God's temple, we adore you and praise you that they will hunger no more and thirst no more, that the sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. As still we lie exposed to the rough storms of trouble and temptations, we rejoice that the Lamb who is their shepherd is also our shepherd, that he guides us with them to springs of living water and wipes away every tear from our eyes. To him be honor and glory and blessing now and forevermore. You may be seated. 
Grace to you and peace, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those gathered here in this sanctuary and also everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to join together in the worship of God today. Because it is in God's house that we are met, that means our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome at First Church. We ask everyone, members and guests alike, if they would kindly pat, pass the friendship pad along the pew, signing it as you go. And even if you are in a pew by yourself, please sign the friendship pad. That is our means of contact tracing in the event that we need to let you know about anything uh, with regard to COVID-19, and also just to know, so that we know that you're here. We'd also be delighted if everyone would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service. That time of fellowship takes place in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a short ramp, and there you will find our deacons have prepared some light refreshments and the opportunity for us to engage with one another in conversation. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin. The first is to note there's a wonderful opportunity coming up next Monday, the 16th at 3 o'clock in the McCall Room, and that is to have tea and art with Jean Whitmer, who is a docent at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. She will also be making, I am told, scones for the event, so you won't want to miss that. Uh, email Diane Rogers to indicate your, in, your intention to participate in that at 3 o'clock next Monday, the 16th. Whether you have worshipped with us a long time or a short time, if you believe God is calling you to unite with us in ministry here at First Church, we'd love to receive you into membership on May the 22nd. That will be a new members class, and if you're interested in that, just send me a note. You can attend just to learn more about the church if you wish, but those who wish to be received into membership, of course, will be received into membership on that day. May 22nd, here at the church, we'll also offer a hybrid option for those who are not yet comfortable or unable in any, for any reason to be in person for that. As a family of faith, we share joys and we share sorrows, and today we celebrate with joy the marriage of Carrie Rogers and James Pease here at First Church yesterday in the sanctuary. And we surround that family with our prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving as they begin their life together. As we prepare for worship, I would like to call now on Andrew with a word in particular about upcoming music opportunities. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to highlight two upcoming concerts. One you may have seen on the signboard coming in. It's also in your program. On May 15th, we will welcome Jolt Metzaros, who is a wonderful um, young Hungarian organist who I met at the Luxembourg competition um, about mm, 10 years ago or so, maybe a little bit longer than that. And we've stayed in touch, and this is his first trip to the United States, and I would really, really, really love to have a fantastically swollen audience for him to play for. Um, he has an electrifying program, he's a wonderful musician, and a really, really nice guy, and I hope that you can join us for that concert on May 15th at 7 p.m., that's next Sunday. This afternoon, this is not a First Church event, but you are all still invited. Aaron Patterson, who's graduating from the Curtis Institute, is giving his uh, graduation recital um, this afternoon here in the sanctuary at 4 o'clock. Um, he is a wonderful young organist. Um, they're all so young these days. Um, and he has an, a very eclectic program with some really interesting stuff that he will be teaming up with some of his um, schoolmates for. There's a piece for organ and horn, um, and there's actually a piece that is for organ, piano, and harpsichord altogether. Um, so if you're free this afternoon at 4 o'clock, um, I know that uh, he would be appreciative of an audience as well. Thanks so much. One final announcement is to highlight that this Wednesday will be the final installment of our book group reading the book Saving Us by Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, she's a climate scientist, and we are exploring the ways that faith and climate change inter intersect with each other. And even if you aren't able to attend the book group, there are a few remaining copies of the book in the church office. They're free of charge. We'd love for you to take them. We don't need a bunch of extra books around the church, so take it and read it at your leisure, please. We'd love to, love to include you in that. With all of these announcements noted, let us continue our worship with our confession of sin. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
God will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Let us therefore, with confidence, together confess our sin. Let us pray. Eternal God, on our best days, we are still sinners. We still take more than we need. We still hold more than we ought. We still live mostly for ourselves. We have fallen short of loving God and loving our neighbors. We are not malicious, O Lord, but we are sinners. But you are not a God of excuses and qualifiers. Forgive our moments of complacency and inaction. Forgive our failures and misdeeds. Have mercy on us and make us whole. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far God removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, as a mother has compassion for her children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. And in Jesus Christ, I declare to you, he forgives. Believe in the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
The Psalter reading is a psalm written on our hearts, the 23rd. Listen for God's word to us this day. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And from the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Now in Joppa there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which is in Greek, Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, who heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him with the request, please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Thanks be to God. Our final lesson is taken from the 10th chapter of John's Gospel account. We read the 22nd verse through the 30th. Continue to listen for the word of God. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Some years ago, I found myself standing in the laundry room of my home with the air conditioning repairman as he pointed to the ice encrusting the working parts of my air conditioner in July in North Carolina. Warm air was blowing out of the vents. He began a small lecture about the finer points of how air conditioning compressors work and what was not working on my air conditioner that went on for some time. Before my eyes started to glaze over, I asked him, just tell me plainly, and he responded, this is going to cost you. <laughs> I never like hearing that. A few years ago on a Sunday morning, I got in my car to come to church and a warning light went off on my dash informing me that I had a flat tire. Well, when I got out of the car and looked at all of my tires, they were all fine. I checked the air pressure, they were all still fine. So the next morning, as I sat across the desk from a service advisor, he said, Don't worry, it's nothing we can't easily fix. Just one of your wheel sensors has gone bad. They work off of batteries, and, and they do that in time. It'll be about $500 to fix it. There are four wheels, I said out loud. Yes, he replied. And we should probably talk about your brakes, and there are a few other things you might want to attend to. Tell me plainly, I said, this is going to cost you. I never like hearing that. There's a, a certain amount of peevishness, almost, that seems to surround the question that is asked of Jesus in the moment we read about in John's Gospel account today. Jesus has been walking about freely in the temple in an area called Solomon's Portico, and a group of Jews have come to him to ask him to tell them plainly if he is the Messiah. Now, lest we inadvertently reinforce any anti-Semitic notions, remember that Jesus was a Jew, and he was living in a Jewish culture, and in this particular story, standing in the Jewish place of worship, so, of course, the people that came to ask him the question were Jews themselves. But there does seem to be a certain prickliness about this particular group of folks who have come to Jesus to ask him about his identity. Tell us plainly, they say. Now, in my experience, so often that is the way we say things when we don't want to face up to what they really mean. Standing in front of my air conditioner with ice all over the works, I knew not to expect a good outcome. Sitting in the car dealer doing the math of what I had just been told, I didn't want to add the figures together. Give it to me straight. Tell me plainly what I don't want to hear. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing him teaching, knowing the stories that surrounded him, knowing the ways in which Jesus has already called his followers to be ready to follow him, is it any wonder that this group of folks in this moment want a little extra time to think about it, to get a little extra clarity, or perhaps to hear that it isn't what they think it is. Depending on who is doing the asking, there is a very great deal at stake in how Jesus answers. There's a very great deal at stake as to whether or not he is the Messiah. Now in John's Gospel account, Jesus' pattern thus far is not one of quiet ethical teaching. His pattern of behavior has not been one that upholds the status quo in any way. In the pages leading up to this particular encounter in the temple, we know that he has already stepped on some very 
sensitive toes. Sure, he has fed 5,000 people and walked across the water, but he has also hung out with the likes of a Samaritan and suggested that when the Messiah comes, all of God's people will gather in together and worship in one place. But Samaritans and Jews did not worship together. They didn't do anything together. It was very much a back-of-the-bus sort of arrangement between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's all going to change, says Jesus. Sure, he's healed a great number of people, dramatic moments of restoring sight to the blind. But he also did that on the Sabbath, blowing the traditions of faith to smithereens and questioning the very basis of how the intersection of faith and practice are to be understood. The way it has been is not the way it will be if he is the Messiah. The Pharisees initiated an internal investigation into that particular healing. Sure, he preaches powerful, stem-winding sermons, when they're comprehensible at least, but there's also that unfortunate incident of his interaction with that woman who was taken in adultery, caught in the very act, en flagrante delicto, as they like to say. Have you ever noticed how much enjoyment certain people seem to get out of rolling that phrase around on their tongues? Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, their job was to know what was required in such a situation, so they did exactly what the law required of them. They dragged her out into the street to meet justice. And what does Jesus do but to start drawing stick figures in the sand at their feet in front of each one of them? Who knows what words he wrote at the feet of each accuser? They were careful not to record that bit. And in the end, there was no one left to accuse. This is the Messiah? There's no order, no sense of tradition, there's no decorum. This is the Messiah? So tell us plainly are you the Messiah? As I said last week, it's a potentially dangerous thing to embrace such a Messiah. So tell us plainly, this is going to cost you. There's no mistaking the gospel is costly in John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when it comes to the Last Supper, that meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before his crucifixion, it's very clear in all three of those gospels that it is a Passover meal. But that's not the case in John's gospel. In John, the Last Supper is just a meal. It's a meal like any other meal because Passover is the next day in John's Gospel. And Jesus will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And lest we think that this represents some harshness on the part of God towards Jesus, here in this very passage that we read, Jesus reiterates once more, the Father and I are one. Whatever Jesus does, it is the act of God. God is completely committed to the healing of the world and of our relationship with God. This is, in every way, costly grace. And for those who maintain the temple establishment, this overturning of a Sabbath regulation with the free dispensation of God's grace is going to cost them something. Anyone who reflects on the nature of God's grace is going to face a steep cost as well. We know what happens to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The definition of Messiah that Jesus is using is one that comes 
straight from the self-sacrificing, self-giving heart of God. So if you want an easy Messiah to follow, Jesus isn't it. If you want a tame Messiah to hold, Jesus isn't it. If you want a cheap Messiah who will ask nothing of you, Jesus isn't it. But if you want the Good Shepherd, on the other hand, there's no one else. If you want the easy yoke, on the other hand, there's no one else. You know what a yoke is, right? It's that device that holds two farm animals side by side so that they are forced to pull together. And did you know that in the law, where God has some pretty clear expectations about everyone having a rest and a reasonable chance of getting out of debt, as well as purity requirements for priests and stoning people for adultery, that portion of the scriptures that we so often avoid actually has rules about how to yoke animals. Did you know that God expressly prohibits yoking animals unevenly? It's about basic kindness. An uneven match would overburden the stronger animal and overwork the weaker animal and probably kill them both over time. And Jesus, the Good Shepherd, knows the capabilities and abilities of his sheep. So Jesus, the Messiah, voluntarily does all the hard work. So when we are invited to tie ourselves to Jesus, it is after he has already done absolutely everything that will ever have to be done for our salvation. That's the sort of Messiah that Jesus is. That's what it means to share a yoke with him. And because that is the sort of Messiah that he is, there's a lot at stake in the answer to this question. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, there's no more back of the bus for the Samaritans. If Jesus answers, yes, he is the Messiah, there's not one minute more delay for healing on the Sabbath. Not ever. No excuses. If Jesus answers that he is the Messiah, there's no more vigilante oppression in the streets with stones in hand. The women of his day could breathe more easily. If Jesus is the Messiah he says he is, there is no more status quo. Which is a great thing unless you happen to like the status quo. If you happen to like the status quo, you may be thinking, tell us plainly. To which the answer is, this is going to cost you. You know, Jesus has done everything for salvation, but the nature of costly grace is that when Jesus invites us to come and follow him, he means our whole lives. That's what it means to embrace the costly grace of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. It is to recognize that the claim is on our whole lives. It's not a pick-and-choose prospect because the call of Jesus is not a cafeteria arrangement. We can't get a little Jesus in church and think that Jesus isn't also present at the bank, the bar, the bedroom, and the boardroom. Last week, our elders and deacons-elect were studying our book of confessions as part of their preparation to take office in a, a few weeks, and we were going through all of the confessions, uh, way more of the confessions than the book of order. I got way off track. But anyway, we were going through all of the confessions, and we came to the one about the Barman Declaration. That's the one where the church says unequivocally, there is no part of life for a Christian where Christ is not Lord. That's what it means to follow a Messiah who dispenses costly grace. And 
that sort of thinking is going to cost you. Because the problem with messiahs, if they are authentic, is that they mirror the God who anointed them. And Jesus is crystal clear about this, even as he is claiming the whole lives of his followers, that he is doing the will of a good and gracious God with whom he is one. No wonder they keep asking, tell us plainly. I have told you. Yes, the yoke is easy and the burden is light, but the same Jesus told us that those who would lose their life for his sake would gain it. And those who would preserve their lives, preserve the status quo for their own sake, would lose them. There is nothing about following Jesus that is a partial calling. And this is the great good news of the gospel for all for whom the status quo isn't good enough. For all for whom the status quo means more of the same, more gun violence, more racism, more homophobia, more economic elitism. For all for whom the status quo fails, this is good news. And of course, for those of us who like the status quo, well, we may be thinking to ourselves, well, tell us plainly, are, are you really the Messiah? But here's the thing. At the end of the day, whether we like the status quo or not, God's kingdom is coming. We pray for it every week with the words of the Lord's Prayer. And I wonder sometimes if maybe when the status quo seems to be holding on to us in ways that we can't quite break free from, in ways that hold us down and hold us up in our faith development, ways that lead to oppression and anxiety and I wonder in those moments if we wonder with this Messiah who has already come when that kingdom is finally going to show up. I was thinking about that and I looked at an old book by John Dominic Cross and he puts a new spin on this when he asks the question just what sort of a Messiah we are looking for. The question that that audience in John's Gospel was wrestling with. And Crossan concludes from the words of Jesus himself that the sort of Messiah that Jesus set out to be is a Messiah who seeks collaboration from us in the redemption of the world. You have been waiting for God, Crossan hypothetically sees Jesus asking, while God has been waiting for you. No wonder nothing is happening. Or maybe I can put a little finer point on it. Maybe I can say it a little more plainly. We're all familiar with the good news of the gospel, that God loves us, that Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead on the third day, marking God's redemption of creation and the victory over death. We're all familiar, we've heard it, I hope, that grace is free and that nothing we can ever do will make God love us one bit more or one bit less. That's the good news of the gospel and every word of it's true. But have you ever considered the bad news of the gospel? It's the shadow side of the good news. It sounds like this. We have been redeemed, and now God expects us to act like it in every imaginable way and in some ways that we cannot yet imagine. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? I have told you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us together confess the Church's faith. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. If you mean to follow this good shepherd, it's going to cost you. I invite you to offer your life your tithes, and your offerings to him.
Let us pray. Behold your flock gathered on this morning, dear God, in your name. Some are wounded in heart and spirit, afraid they face the future alone and at risk. Some are angry but resolved to return to battles they thought they had put behind them. Some are weary in well-doing and wondering if they are still of any use. Some rejoice at the prospect of what promises to be a pyrrhic victory. Some are mothers, and some motherless children. 
grateful for the love given and received all the days of their lives. On the first day of the week, when we set out again to follow you, we asked you to silence the bleeding in our heads and open our ears for a moment that we may hear your voice and know you and follow you. Because we have been loved by the Good Shepherd in whose fold we shall not want for anything, save for your reign begun on earth as in heaven, we give you thanks in the midst of the wilderness of our lives where we wander lost, that in the love that never quits, we have been found. Because we have been loved by the Good Shepherd who makes us lie down, breathe deeply, pay astonished attention, well up with gratitude in the green pastures of a life abundant with friendships and deep loves. We praise you that were we to lose everything tomorrow, we would wake awash in gratitude still for the love that never gives up on us or our children. Because we have been loved by the Good Shepherd who leads us beside the still waters, because you alone have the power to slake our deepest thirsts and longing. We glorify you that you claim us in the waters of baptism and feed us at the table set by your love that is stronger than death. Because we have been loved by the Good Shepherd who restores our souls that have been unraveled in a week awash with wars raging within and without, we bow down in gratitude for this sanctuary of time and of space, wherein we may remember the love for which we were made and enter a future that does not depend on our past. Because we have been loved by the Good Shepherd who leads us on the path paved with forgiveness and so writes what has gone wrong in our attempts to be human, we rejoice in every hint of reconciliation this side of the grave where love succeeds. And because we have been loved by the Good Shepherd, who accompanies us even now in the Valley of the Shadow, his rod and his staff thwarting the last enemy trying to have at us, his goodness and mercy pursuing us all the days of our lives until we dwell in the room you have made for us in your love forever. Because we have been loved in this way, we pray now as children to our mother who tenderly leads us and to our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
because Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is the Messiah in the way that he is, it means there is no aspect of our life on which God does not exercise a claim. But that also means that there is not an aspect of our lives about which God has not also offered redemption. And because Jesus is the Messiah the way he is, we can now be the people God created us to be. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.